Welcome to the White Spring Bunker. These halls were built to safeguard some of the most prestigious members of the United States government. Now we are all that remains, though we are always looking for men and women capable of restoring what has been lost. In return, we offer this, our refuge from the world above. Please take your time and look around. Our assets have made great efforts to restore this place to its former glory. Welcome, member, to our little enclave. Welcome back, members. As always, I am the Operative, your designated tour guide and host here at the White Spring. The pieces are moving across the chessboard that is Appalachia. The Brotherhood of Steel and the Overseer may be putting themselves on a collision course with the White Spring without understanding the true threats facing them all. The Colonel must lead her band of survivors back to the resort, putting their lives in the hands of their new allies, the Mole Miners. But now the Colonel walks a treacherous path with an uncertain future. Team Cryptid finds itself facing an even greater danger deep within the mines of Mononga, while the residents of Vault Town discover unlikely allies on their doorstep. While Trader Red and her companions continue their hike south, hunters are now hot on the trail of the rare's cryptid. But who is the predator, and who is the prey? The once abandoned Atlas Observatory was now a bustling military compound, renamed Fort Atlas by its new occupants. The flags adorned with the insignia of the Brotherhood of Steel hung on the walls, while new recruits called Initiates continued to unload boxes of supplies. The Brotherhood Knights were working on their power armor or standing guard outside, should the supermutants be foolish enough to attack the facility. Scribe Valdez was busy cataloging the various pieces of obscure technology found at the observatory including tracking down more information on the mysterious Ultrasight battery. Paladin Romani was finishing up yet another discussion with the Overseer. With so little information about the actual state of affairs in Appalachia before they arrived, the Paladin was grateful for the Overseer's insights, even if her companions continued to express reservations. From what you've told me about the White Spring, I've become increasingly concerned, Overseer. We've struggled to contain their influence for nearly three years now. For every bit of good they appear to do, I can point to numerous times when they've harmed the people of Appalachia. While I don't know where these super mutants came from, I believe Valeria and her ilk are responsible for them. Her parents were military, correct? They were. I never liked them. They kept to themselves, mostly. And what they did to their daughter. It was inhumane. It's not a surprise she grew up to become an immoral thug, though it's also not an excuse. Your associate, Day, appears to disagree with you, at least as far as your opinion about Valeria. Day is a fine young man. He saved my life, but he's an idealist. And I think what happened in Vault 79 has clouded his judgment. He has forgotten who the real enemy is. Overseer, please don't take this the wrong way but you've been extremely vague about exactly what you were doing in that vault before Night Shin found you. There isn't much to tell. Vault 79 was of a non-standard design, and we thought it might contain valuable supplies we could use. Unfortunately, the super mutants got there first. 
We lost so many good people, and we are grateful your knight Shin found us when he did. I find it intriguing that you would risk traveling quite so far from that settlement you call Foundation for Supplies. Perhaps you would humor me and submit a written account of what happened in Vault 79. For our records, of course. Of course, Paladin. I would be happy to. In the meantime, anything we can do together to combat this new threat, both the Super Mutants and the Whitespring, my people would be at the ready. That is very much appreciated. Now, we'll speak again soon, after I've had the opportunity to review the reports from our recon team. The paladin reached over and shook the overseer's hand. As the overseer left the makeshift office, Knight Shin walked in and placed several clipboards on the paladin's desk. More super mutants have been spotted to the north. North? How did they get there? Unknown. At least three groups appeared in the proximity of the town of Monunga. They are converging on that location, but we have no idea why. I'm struggling to find a pattern here, Shin. Without radio communication, we are operating with a huge blind spot. I believe we should prioritize finding a long-range transmitter. We need to update the elders. Not that I disagree with you, but until we better understand what is happening, I want our troops to stay close to Fort Atlas. From what the Overseer has told me, we may be facing multiple threats. I find her stories to be less than truthful. She's hiding something, that much is clear. However, much of what she has provided makes sense. And if the White Spring Resort is hiding advanced technology, then it is a threat. Whether or not we can deal with it right now is a lot less clear. My knights don't just like sitting around, Paladin. We should be doing something. I could order an excursion to Monunga, a reconnaissance in force. It's not too far, and I don't believe a small number of super mutants could pose a threat to us. We could also gain valuable intelligence on their intentions. I'll take it under consideration. Our first priority, however, is to finish fortifying our positions here. Dismissed, Shin. Ad Victorium. Hmm. Ad Victorium, Paladin. Knight Shin saluted and left the office. He wasn't happy with their situation, and even more disappointed with his own failure to secure the FEV samples before their arrival at Fort Atlas. Elder Maxon himself had briefed Shin before they left Lost Hills. A Brotherhood scribe had discovered transit records from Mariposa detailing one final shipment of the most advanced strain of the virus. They had been sent to West Tech and Appalachia for further experimentation, but the samples had never arrived. Further investigation ordered by the Elder uncovered evidence that the vertebrate transport had crashed around the time the bombs dropped. A transmission had been intercepted by an automated listing post and cataloged in its archive recovered by the Brotherhood in the years after the war. It was only when Maxon had put two and two together that he had realized what had happened. Lucky for the Elder, the transit documents also included the transponder code for the FEV shipment. The crate, powered by a small fusion core, would transmit a location signal for decades, and it was easy to build a locator device, which Elder Maxon had given to Knight Shin. Mariposa and the Elder had a history, a very dark one which had been the catalyst for Captain Roger Maxon to mutiny and ultimately form the Brotherhood in the aftermath of the Great War. This was an open wound the Elder wanted closed, and he was crystal clear in his orders to Knight Shin that the location and destruction of those samples was paramount, even if it meant disobeying Paladin Romani. Now, he had to uncover just who his men had clashed with in the mire, and where they had taken the FEV samples. Unfortunately, he had very little to go on, but that had never stopped him before.
and although he would go along with the paladin's plans for the moment, Shin would find what he was looking for and fulfill his elders' orders. As Knight Shin made his way back to the armory, he passed two of their guests. It was Day and the young woman named Jen. He was very suspicious of the woman in her Chinese stealth suit. He had finally convinced the paladin to confiscate the technology, which had visibly upset the woman, but as long as she refused to divulge any details on where she had gotten it, the knight was happy to let her stew. He had much bigger fish to fry. Jen and Day watched Knight Shin walk over to the armory. He seemed to have a perpetual scowl on his face, and he made no bones about his feelings regarding Jen and the rest of them. What an asshole. I can't believe he took my mother's stealth suit. We didn't have much of a choice. It wasn't exactly asking. Were you prepared to tell him exactly how you got it? No, but that doesn't mean I have to like it. Come on, let's get some food. I want to stay as far away from what's going on here as I can until we can figure out what's really going on. Ever since the massacre in Vault 79, Day had kept close to Jen. She had saved his life, pulling him behind an empty gold crate as the super mutants opened fire with assault rifles and miniguns. Most of the others weren't so lucky. It had turned into a running battle through the empty halls of the vault as the super mutants tried to chase them down. Only a few of them had made it all the way back to the tunnel, and then it had been Radcliffe who saved the day when he rigged three fusion cores to the broken motherload, while the others had covered him. The resulting detonation had brought the whole cavern down on top of the super mutants who tried to chase them further down the tunnel. It had also nearly killed the Foundation survivors as well, but Radcliffe had known what he was doing, even if he had cut it a bit close. When they had finally returned to the basement of Freddy's House of Scares, none of the folks they left behind were there. All the group found were numerous shell casings and some blood, but otherwise there was no sign of their missing people. After thoroughly searching the area, Day had led them south along the main road, straddling the Savage Divide in the mire when they ran into Knight Shin's company of power-armored troopers. The overseer had pulled Day aside and convinced him to lie about what had happened in Vault 79. She didn't want to tell anyone about the gold. Day hadn't liked it one bit, but he admitted he didn't know if these Brotherhood soldiers could be trusted. On the way back to the Atlas Observatory, they had found out about the super mutant attacks. The overseer wouldn't stop blaming Valeria and the Whitespring, sure that she was responsible for what was happening all across Appalachia. Day wasn't so sure, and the longer he thought about it, the more he was convinced that Valeria wasn't involved. She wanted control, not chaos. Words of attacks on major settlements, including Foundation, just added to his conviction that something else was going on. As he and Jen grabbed a tray of rations from the counter, Jen led him over to one of the tables at the back of the makeshift cafeteria, out of earshot of anyone else. Day, I'm worried about the Overseer. She doesn't sound like herself. All of the lies, the manipulation... This is wrong. I know. I don't like it either. I've tried talking to her, but she's not listening to me. We need to leave. I have to get back to Foundation to make sure my mom's okay. We don't know what happened to Paige, Penny, and the others. They could be hurt. Or worse. I can't stay cooped up here. It feels like a prison. Let me talk to the Paladin. She seems reasonable, and maybe I can convince her to let you and Radcliffe head back. If you head west, then south, you can avoid the super mutants. Come with us. Come with me. Please. Jen reached across the table and took Day's hand in hers and squeezed. They had each felt a growing attachment to the other, even talked about it a few times in the past, but it had never been the right time, not with everything else going on. I want to, Jen. But I came to Appalachia to help people. 
and I can't just walk away. Helping people and sacrificing yourself are two different things. You should think about that. With that, Jen let go of Day's hand and picked up her tray, walking out of the cafeteria towards their bunk room. Day looked down at his hands and then to the empty space across from him. The path forward had always been so clear, a vision for a better future. He used to know who the enemy was, but now, now he wasn't so sure. Day, Day, my boy. Day turned to find the overseer standing in the doorway. What do you need, overseer? I've been told that some super mutants are heading to Mananga. I was going to suggest to the paladin that we see if we can't capture a few of them. Perhaps we can find out where they came from and how Valeria managed to do all of this. Day closed his eyes and spread his hands out on the table before standing and walking over to the overseer. Valeria didn't do this, overseer. Of course she did. It's all part of her plan, don't you see? You were right all along, Day. I was so naive. She must have the gold from the vault, and now she's using this army of super mutants to get what she wants. Control of everything. Overseer, none of this makes any sense. You need to listen to me. Day, I need your help. Now more than ever. It's always darkest before the dawn, my boy. Day looked back at the empty table before returning his gaze to the overseer. He attempted to mask his own internal struggle as he tried to form a response. In the end, he had to make a decision. All right, all right. But I need you to do something for me. My boy, of course. You just need to ask. Talk to Paladin Romani about Jen and Radcliffe. Ask her to let them leave. After everything they've been through, tell her to go home. Back to Foundation. Oh, Day, of course. They wouldn't be much good to us with what's to come anyway. Those words caused Day to grit his teeth. Overseer, these people risked their lives and they lost their friends. Our friends. Day, I know it's hard. I feel their loss too. But sacrifice is necessary if we are to rebuild. And now it's more important than ever that we confront the evil that has risen in Appalachia. No more half measures. Day nearly snapped at her. But he remembered where he was, and who he was. If he could at least get Jen and Radcliffe to safety, it would be worth it. He hadn't given up hope. That wasn't in his nature. He had to figure out a way to get through to the Overseer, to get her to see reason again, to be the woman that he had first met at the mountainside bed and breakfast. And he couldn't do that if she viewed him as her enemy. Instead, Day just nodded. He would need to find people at Fort Atlas he could trust, that he could talk to, because he needed to prevent things from getting any worse. As Day followed the Overseer to find Paladin Romani, he hoped that it wasn't too late to bring Appalachia back from the brink. Ever since the first mine was sunk into the hills of Appalachia, the region had slowly honeycombed with man-made tunnels, first seeking coal and other vital raw materials, then much later, those same tunnels became home to something else entirely. Through the darkened tunnels, a small group illuminated by Pip-Boys and old mine lights slowly walked south. All right, let's take a break. Blaine, keep an eye behind us. Sullivan, Bitter, you go ahead and make sure we're still clear. Yes, ma'am. Great, more scenic tunnels to explore. Quit your yapping and start walking. 
He says we shouldn't break for too long. We're passing close to unfriendly territory. The pact? <laughs> that was a yes, Colonel. I almost got that. Okay, we'll keep it short. Lawson, can I talk to you? Of course, Colonel. Valeria led Private Lawson over to the side, just out of earshot of the others. We haven't had the chance to debrief, Private. It's been a little crazy, ma'am. You look exhausted. You sure you're okay? We're all tired, Private. Our first priority is getting back, then we can all get some rest. But I do have some questions for you. First, just how did you survive? We found what we thought were your remains. Honestly, it all happened so fast. The Assaultron came out of the trees, and I fired at it. Then one of the old school buses exploded, probably from the heat or the laser blast. I was thrown up in the air, and I landed some distance away. And that's the last thing I remember before I woke up with the mole miners. We found your pack, stuffed underneath the park bench. I stashed that right before everything happened. I remembered reading that in Unstoppables number 167, in the Serpent Slayer. Of course you did. How's Team Cryptid? I know they'd be shocked to hear I'm alive. They certainly would be. Unfortunately, Captain Thompson didn't survive our battle with the Assaultron. Thompson? Is dead? He died a hero, Private. He did what was necessary to get the job done. The Captain was like a father to me, Colonel. I should have been there. Maybe I could have done something. Private, you did everything you could. We thought we had lost you too. Sometimes I feel like we're up to our elbows in blood, and no matter what we do, we can never wash it off. You've always done what you thought was right, Colonel. Maybe. But that doesn't make it any easier, Private. It never does. As the dark shadows played over the Colonel's face, it almost took on a death's head visage, highlighted by the gleam of her silver eye. Well, how about everyone else? Are they okay? Captain Skinner, Douglas, and Emily along with the new recruits, have done good work. I... I admit, I may not have been as appreciative of their efforts as I should have been. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing them when I get back. They might not be there. Just before we left for Emmett Mountain, I gave Captain Skinner permission to take the team to Monanga. They presented good evidence that something very unusual was going on there. Wait, you said they went to Monanga? That's what I just said, Private. What is it? Mr. Rivers, I... I mean, Frederick, he... He said the mole miners don't go anywhere near there anymore. Why not? Well, they used to have a small settlement in the mine. The pact came and slaughtered them all. Set up some kind of research station. What kind of research? Frederick said they were creating some kind of monsters. Big ones. Well, as out there as the theories are, I have faith in Skinner and the team. They've fought monsters before. God, I hope you're right. I've seen things down here, Colonel. Sometimes... I wish we really did have the Unstoppables with us, because we're going to need all the help we can get. Colonel, Sullivan and I checked the tunnel. It looks clear, uh, at least a ways down. Can't be certain beyond that. Thank you, Better. Lawson, we have a lot more to talk about. I'll expect a full report when we get back to the bunker. With what I know already, along with your information, Modus should be able to help put together a plan. Sure thing, ma'am. I've taken lots of notes, and Frederick and these mole miners are going to need all the help we can give them. I didn't get a chance to say this before, but it's good to have you back, Private. The Private smiled through the burn scars on his face, saluted, and went to go to collect his pack to resume their hike through the tunnels. All right, people. I know we're all tired, but we need to keep moving. Valia! Me ready! 
And can carry if too tired. That's okay, Graham, but thank you for the offer. Hey, big guy, I wouldn't mind a ride on your shoulders, at least for a little while. Sam, me happy for company. Please watch head, though. Graham picked up the corporal and placed her on his shoulders. It was a bit of a comical sight, but Samantha had taken a liking to the big green traitor. They made an unusual pair, and seeing them, Valeria thought about Eugenie. The decision to send her away had been the right one, but her absence gnawed at Valeria, as did the thought that she might never see her again. Valeria pushed those feelings back down inside, remembering what her parents had taught her about suppressing her emotions, but the physical and mental toll of everything she had experienced was steadily breaking down her carefully crafted defenses. She brushed the dirt and dust from her armor, shouldered her combat rifle, and focused on her resolve to put one boot in front of the other until they got to the white spring. Their mole miner guide shuffled forward, leading from the front, mumbling to herself in her nearly incomprehensible language while the sound of Blaine's power armor footsteps brought up the rear. The group continued down into the dark until they reached a branch in the tunnel. One section looked relatively new, the ceiling held out with fresh timber, while the other was much older. What did she say, Lawson? Lawson walked up and made a quick sign, then the mole miner repeated herself. She said we're going to need to make a detour. A detour? All these damn tunnels look exactly alike. How does she know? Give it a rest, Sullivan. What if I could? But I'm damn tired of all this walking. We're all tired, Sullivan. Lawson, what's the problem and why the detour? Lawson made another sign to the purveyor, who responded with what sounded like a longer explanation. The tunnel's getting unstable. She said she can feel it. Great. Am I going to get another mountain dropped on my head? Me could try to hold up, Cave Sullivan. Appreciate the offer, big guy. Okay, okay, enough. I'm going to take a look for myself. I'll take our mole miner friend and be right back. Let me come too, Colonel. Stay here, Private. I'm not going far, and I want you all to stay together. Be ready to move. No one was especially happy, but the Colonel was tired of letting others do the hard work. Maybe it was her exhaustion, or just the rise of her stubborn streak. But once she set her mind to something, she would see it through. The mole miner led the way, not to the newer section of the tunnel, but instead down the old one. That was a surprise, until Valeria got a look at the bracing. Well, it might have appeared old, it was, in fact, camouflage. Older timbers had been placed in front of the new ones, masking them. The same applied to the latticework above them, made to look old, but instead it must have all been replaced recently. Not bad. Hiding in plain sight. The ball miner motioned for her to follow her down the tunnel, passing two more branches heading off in different directions. As they proceeded, Valeria could feel a slight vibration in her boots. Her companion raised her gloved hand and they both stopped. She leaned down and placed her other hand on the ground. Colonel, checking in. Are you okay? We're fine, Sergeant. Our friend appears to be gauging the stability of the tunnel. We should be back shortly. Just be careful, Colonel. Valeria clicked off the radio and walked over to the mole miner. I think you can understand me, right? The mole miner turned and looked up at her. It was impossible to see through the thick lenses of her gas mask, but Valeria could feel her eyes on her. The mole miner nodded. Did your people dig these tunnels? Another nod. Impressive work. I know you're trying to be careful, but we need to get to Blackwater Mine as quickly as possible. 
The mole miner grunted in such a way as to remind Valeria of a parent expressing their displeasure to an annoying child. Instead of responding, the mole miner continued to walk down the tunnel, stopping every few feet and checking the floor and walls. The pair continued for another hundred feet or so down the tunnel, when the mole miner stopped suddenly and looked down at something in the dirt. Her companion pulled out her shotgun and turned around, pointing it back the way they came. Valeria knelt down to examine what the mole miner had seen. At first she was confused, the fatigue clouding her ability to realize what she was looking at. Then it hit her. It was a boot print. Not just one, but several. They appeared to come from the opposite direction and just stop, as if the wearers of the boots had just vanished. But they didn't just vanish, did they? The mole miner spoke in a quick mishmash of gibberish, reaching back and grabbing Valeria by the arm, attempting to pull her forward. She stumbled, then fumbled for her combat rifle. The itch between her shoulder blades returned with a vengeance, and the mole miner fired down the tunnel at something. But when Valeria looked at what it was, there wasn't anything there. Confused and struggling against exhaustion, Valeria raised her rifle and scanned from side to side, even as the mole miner fired again, nearly yelling in her strange language at her and pointing. Further down the tunnel, Valeria saw a distortion, a mirage. Before she could tell what it was, she heard the staccato pop of a silenced automatic weapon. She dove to the side as the bullets impacted on the mole miner, shattering the glass of her goggles and thudding into her chest. Colonel! We heard gunfire! What's going on? Colonel! Valeria rolled across the tunnel floor and snapped up her rifle, trying to get a bead on whoever had shot at her and her companion. She hesitated to fire until she had a target, but she was just about to squeeze the trigger anyway when the sound of compressed air echoed off the rock walls. (sighs) Feeling a hot burning sensation in her neck, Valeria reached up and found a dart sticking out of her skin. She grabbed it and threw it to the ground, nearly falling over as she felt an icy chill start spreading through her body. From down the tunnel, the visual distortions she had glimpsed before suddenly returned, only to reveal themselves to be individuals wearing some kind of scout armor. The paint seemed to change color as the wearers moved, mimicking the background, making them appear to fade in and out of existence. Somewhere in the back of her mind, Valeria remembered her father saying something about chameleon armor, but it was getting so hard to think as her brain got foggy and her limbs felt as though they weighed a ton each. The four individuals, each one now clearly visible as they stepped out into the open, carried either automatic weapons or syringers. The modified dart guns were normally used to hunt wild game, and in this case, the colonel was the game. Valeria tried to raise her rifle again, only to have it slip from her fingers and fall to the ground at her feet. Struggling to stand, she felt dizzy and the vision in her left eye slowly faded even as her right robotic eye provided a clear image of the one soldier stepping forward. His face was covered with a black scout mask with glowing eyes of night vision technology, but she could almost feel the smirk underneath it as he watched her slowly succumb to whatever chemical concoction they had injected her with. Just who the hell are you? (laughs) My, my, my. You do live up to your reputation, Colonel. There's enough immobilizer in there to put down a mutant hound. But you're still trying to put up a fight. Screw you. Gray Nine just crossed his arms as he watched Valeria sway on her feet before her eye finally rolled back into her head and she lost the battle for consciousness. She fell into a heap on the floor of the tunnel next to her rifle. And here I was thinking the dose was too strong. Alright Gray Twelve, grab her and let's go. The others are on their way and we need to be gone. Gray Twenty! Yes sir? Did you set the charges? Proximity fuses active, sir. 
Good, good. Time to sacrifice some pawns. Let's get back to the rally point for our ride. Gray 12 scooped Valeria off the ground and threw her limp body over his shoulder. Almost as quickly as they had appeared, the group disappeared down the tunnel and were gone. The survivors had come in at a dead run as soon as they heard the gunfire. The colonel and her Molmeyer companion had traveled far further down the tunnel than they had expected. And when the group finally reached their destination, all they found was the badly wounded Molmeyer and the colonel's rifle. What happened? Where is she? Folia! Folia! Shit. I got tracks. Looks like they took her down that way. Bitter, ever the tracker, got up to run after whoever had the colonel. But it was Samantha, still sitting on Graham's shoulder, who spotted something that shouldn't have been there. Bitter, stop! Get down! Once upon a time, 27 years after the bombs fell, there were two people, a vault dweller and a California girl. They met and sparks flew. That's when things got interesting. Once Upon a Wasteland is their story. Follow Elizabeth Kirby and Odessa Valdez as they pursue their happily ever after in the post-apocalyptic Appalachian wasteland of Fallout 76. Available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. Once Upon a Wasteland, a Fallout 76 love story. Available now. Lieutenant Cindy and Jones felt like they'd been walking forever, climbing over rock piles and avoiding mole rats as they made their way down the tunnel carved by the large drilling machine. The radio interference, which was responsible for the communications blackout across Appalachia, only got worse once they were underground. They lost contact with Foundation only after a few hundred yards. Well, not unexpected, it was still a worrying development. However, both of the operatives were dedicated to collecting whatever information they could find out where the supermutants who had attacked Foundation came from. As far as Jones could tell, they were walking roughly north in the direction of West Tech. The tunnel itself had all the signs of being freshly dug, and he kept an eye on the ceiling, just in case it decided to start to collapse. Do you think there are any spiders down here? Spiders? You know, the big ones. They really give me the willies. So you're worried about spiders and not the big mean and smart super mutants who want to eat us. Oh, I'm scared of them too. But they aren't pure evil like spiders. You know, I'm not even surprised. Well, keep a sharp eye out for him, just in case. Thank you, Jones. You're welcome, but I'm also watching for super mutants too, just so you know. Me too. Just how far have we been walking? According to my pit boy, it's been at least a few miles. And all we found is more tunnel. How far do you think it goes? No idea. You were right about it being a drill. The marks are consistent, but it's substantially larger than anything we read about in our geology classes. Regardless of how smart those super mutants are, 
I can't imagine they built it. It would take years, if ever. No, I think it's tech from before the war. But how the super mutants got their hands on it, I have no idea. Jones and Cindy exchanged worried looks as their imaginations ran wild. The tunnel took a downward turn and they both had to be careful not to lose their footing. Up ahead, they could see a distant light and indistinct voices. Keep low and stick to the shadows. We need to check this out. You know I've done this before, right? Sorry, force a habit. As they crept down the tunnel, they could now see where the light was coming from. The freshly dug tunnel they were in ended and was replaced with a large concrete hallway. Cindy peeked around the side of a large rock, a few dozen feet from where the light was, and saw piles of boxes and computer equipment lining the far wall. Her eyes were immediately drawn to a large empty metal cradle, which looked big enough to have held the giant drill she saw back at Foundation. Off to one side, there were two individuals, each wearing sleek black armor with rifles slung over their shoulders smoking cigarettes. Thought they were going to shut down, Keystone. I'm getting a little tired of playing guard dog. Yeah, word came down from the director. Might make another run at Spruce Knob, if only to send a message. So, figured it would have been burnt to the ground by now. I didn't think those settlers had it in them. Nah, they just got lucky. Yeah, if you wanted to see some real shit, you should have been at Emmett Mountain. I heard the scout team was damn lucky not to get caught in the explosion. Yeah, Grade 34 said they got rained on by super mutant pots. Yeah, I think he was still picking pieces of bone and brain out of his armor this morning. Gotta give it to those white spring pukes. Clocked right into a trap, but damn if they didn't go down swinging. Yeah, not bad for a bunch of kids. Do you think any survived? Command isn't sure. When I was there with Green Nine, after the bog, collecting those samples from the Scorch Beast Queen, and I'll tell you, that was some damn fine work those kids did. Figure a few of them might have made it out. If times were different, I'd buy them all a drink and christen them honorary Lorenes. Semper Hey, you, uh, got another cig? I just smoked my last. Here you go. Fuck. Rations are getting tight. The white coats keep talking about only this, only that. Same shit for the last ten years. It's about time they finish up and let us back up to the surface. Yeah, is he out praying? You know that, uh, skirt from logistics? Yeah. Yeah, well, she heard from Hilda in research that those samples they've been waiting for finally arrived. That is the best news I heard all year. Grade 25, come in. This is Grade 25. Motherload A2 suffered a system failure at Sector K, Tunnel H5. Grade 12 is requesting assistance until the techs arrive. Not too far. All right, let them know we'll be right there. Negative. Grade 26 is to stay on station. Ah, all right. I'll be fine. Just keep an eye out for Deltas. I'm on my way. Acknowledged. Over and out. Yeah, have fun, and uh, thanks for the sig. Cindy and Jones watched one of the men leave, while the other puffed away at his cigarette, looking at nothing in particular. Who are they? And how do they know so much about us? I have no idea. Maybe we should ask. Are you thinking what I think you're thinking? You have your knife, right? Absolutely. Duh. Stay in the shadows. Cindy nodded and Jones took a deep breath before stepping out from behind the rock. Hey there! I think I'm lost. Gray 26 was in mid-puff when he saw Jones. 
I guess I should have taken that left turn at Albuquerque. Jones took a few steps forward, but kept his hands up. Gray 26 let the cigarette fall from his lips and pulled his sidearm up with a swiftness that Jones had never seen. Hold it right there. Who are you and what are you doing here? Funny. I was about to ask you the same question. Gray 26 took several steps forward himself, keeping the pistol aimed directly at Jones. Last chance. Who are you and what are you doing here? Jones just smiled as he saw Cindy emerge out of the shadows. Her knife was at Gray 26's throat before he could react. Amanda had taught the young lieutenant a thing or two about being sneaky, and combined with the lessons Lilith had given her, Cindy was extremely dangerous in her own right. We'll be the ones asking the questions, thank you. Drop the gun. Gray 26 didn't tense, didn't even blink. With an inhuman swiftness, he slammed his elbow into Cindy's <sighs> stomach, knocking the breath out of her. Jones threw himself to the side, reaching for his own pistol as his opponent pulled the trigger, the bullet passing just by Jones's head. Even as Cindy crumbled, fighting her own nervous system for breath, she lashed out with her knife, sinking it deep into the man's thigh. But other than a soft grunt of pain and a very slight decrease in his speed as he spun to level his pistol at Cindy, he seemed unimpaired. She had barely hit the ground as he aimed precisely at her neck and tightened his finger on the trigger. The sound of a gunshot was loud in the tunnel, and Cindy stared for a moment in shock at the man who just killed her. She was surprised. It barely even hurt. By the time she realized it didn't hurt at all, and was struggling to make sense of that, Cindy saw Gray 26 drop his gun and fall to the floor, revealing a smoking bullet hole in the back of his head. Jones slowly rose to his feet behind him, holding his own pistol. Damn it. Can't question a dead guy. <laughs> Better him than me. Thank you, Jones. Jones walked over and helped Cindy to her feet. I hope no one heard that. Look around while I hide the body, okay? Cindy nodded and went over to the crates and computer terminals. Jones grabbed Gray 26 by his shoulders and dragged the body back behind a big rock. When he put the body down, he noticed the armor immediately changed color, blending in with the rocks and dirt on the floor. Well, that's pretty nifty. Make it easier to hide him, too. Jones did a quick search of the body and took some extra 10mm ammunition and some kind of keycard. Otherwise, there was nothing else to identify who this was or what was going on. Frustrated, Jones piled some rocks on the body and went to see if Cindy found anything useful. Jones found her rummaging through one of the crates. Find anything? Well, this terminal says it's the operating controls for something called the Mother Load, but it's encrypted. What about the boxes? This one's full of old rations, and that other one is full of paperwork. But it's all in a bunch of different foreign languages. I can't read any of them. Here, let me take a look. Jones looked over the documents, and Cindy was right. There were various technical schematics, but they were written in a combination of German, Spanish, and of all things, Chinese. The diagram showed an enormous drill, exactly as Cindy had described during the attack on Foundation. Let's grab them all. Jen's mom, the ghoul, is Chinese, right? Yes, she is. Then she can take a look at these when we get back. Anything else? A whole lot of nothing, unfortunately. Then we keep looking. Where did the other one go? Down the other hallway. See any other security? Cameras or turrets? Not that I can see. And we keep moving. The two operatives walked down the darkened concrete tunnel, taking care to keep to the shadows and using other boxes and crates for cover. As they moved forward, several large pipes snaked along the ceiling and the two of them could hear the hissing of steam. They reached a series of sliding doors lining each side of the tunnel. There were no identifying markings other than a number above each door and a card reader alongside. Should we check them? Might as well. Where do we start? 
How about lucky number seven? Cindy just shrugged her shoulders and followed Jones as he walked up to the door, looking around to make sure no one was coming. Jones slid the card through the reader and was rewarded with a green light. The door slowly opened, revealing some kind of warehouse space. From down the hall, Cindy heard voices and pushed Jones into the room, shutting the door behind them. We did check we could get out of here, right? Cindy turned around and pointed towards a big red button on the wall. Fine, fine. Sorry. Just don't relish getting trapped. So I guess we should look around. The small warehouse space consisted of several rows of industrial shelving, packed with boxes and crates, and the far wall was lined with lockers. As the two walked down the first aisle, they were surprised to see a familiar symbol stamped on every single box. Jones, is that what I think it is? The United States Marine Corps? Going from row to row, Jones found the same symbol. Boxes were also labeled as carrying ammunition, explosives, and weapons. There were also miniguns, missile launchers, and even plasma rifles, all bearing the markings of the U.S. Marines. Cindy had gone to the back and managed to pry open one of the lockers. To her surprise, it contained a full set of Marine combat armor. She opened another to find the same, and another. Between them, there was enough firepower in just this small warehouse to outfit a small army. Jones was just about to open one of the crates when he heard something one row over. He saw Cindy out of the corner of his eye, still investigating the lockers, so he pulled out his pistol and slowly crept to the end of the shelving. He could hear heavy breathing, and when he jumped around and pointed his pistol, he was surprised to find himself face to face with a mole miner. What the? And Jones was even more shocked when the mole miner, instead of being hostile, instead put his gloved hand up to its mask and shushed him. Before Jones could decide how to react, more of the mole miners appeared out of the gloom, and he quickly realized that both he and Cindy were surrounded. To many, there is nothing more terrifying than being trapped in an enclosed space. Claustrophobia is nothing new, but when you add monsters to the mix, it becomes something else entirely. Team Cryptid now found themselves in exactly this situation, one where lesser men and women might have broken. But always the problem solvers, the members of the team instead pulled together to overcome their fears. The entrance to Monaga Mine had collapsed behind the team, leaving them isolated in the holding area of the mine. The small space consisted of a storeroom, lockers, an office, and the tunnel that went further down into the mine. Team Cryptid knew they weren't alone in the mine. One of Thomas's teams was taken by a Wendigo and killed. The bloody drag marks were still visible on the floor, heading off into the darkness below. Beyond that, they knew little else. Captain Skinner gathered the team together in the small office to talk. All right, team. Time to speak freely. We need a new way out of here. From what we've seen... This mine is unstable. I can't recommend any types of explosives to try to clear the entrance. I believe it would merely bring the rest of the ceiling down on top of us. I checked the rest of the area, and there aren't any other exits on this level. Uh, I was afraid of that. So, we go down. My original seismic readings worry me, Captain. I don't think it was just the settling of the mine. There could be a lot more in here than we realize. What choice do we really have, Emily? Even if the super mutants are gone, you yourself said we can't tunnel out the way we came. Either we head down or we wait to die. I did find some more notes from Earl Williams, Captain. What do they say? Well, once his crew got into the mine, they stayed here for a couple of days. They didn't head right down into the main shaft? 
Sounds like it took some convincing. Some of them wanted to leave. Said the mine smelled funny. But Earl convinced them. Not so much convinced, but he bribed them. Said there was a bunch of gold ore down in the mine. Stuff the Hornwright idle miners missed. That managed to get them moving. But Earl wasn't sure himself if they'd find anything. That's awful. He lied to them? Sounds like he thought they'd find something valuable down there. He just didn't know what it was. Guess he figured it was going to be worth it in the end. Last entry said they were heading down to the mine, but that he'd update as soon as they got back. It's a good assumption that they never made it out, did they? We can't know for sure. I don't think they came back this way, but maybe they found another exit below. Just because they didn't get back to Foundation doesn't mean they didn't. That's thin, Douglas. Really thin. Best I got, Captain. Of course, give me a silver shroud or the inspector and maybe I can find some other way out of here. Now that you mention it, I wouldn't mind if the Unstoppable showed up. Unfortunately, we have to deal with what we have, which isn't much. Let me talk to Thomas, because as far as I see it, the only way out of here is to go down. And that means dealing with the Wendigo. With the mention of the fearsome cryptid, several of the researchers visibly winced. Skinner left them to collect their packs and weapons before walking out of the office to the entrance to the lower mine, where Thomas was speaking to his team. Thomas! I can already guess from your face what you're going to say. We're going deeper, aren't we? No choice. Emily thinks we'll bring the whole mine down on our head if we try blasting our way out. And if we try to dig, we'd die of old age before we made a dent in that rubble pile blocking our way out. Do we even know if there's another way out of here? No. That's the God's honest truth. I'm not gonna blow smoke up anyone's ass, Thomas. We've faced long odds before, and I have faith in the team. That's what I always liked about you, Skinner. The eternal optimist. And the whole no explosives thing? That works both ways. We can't be using grenades or charges on our way down either. Just keeps getting better by the minute. So we do this the old fashioned way then? Your team will take point. Sweep and clear as we go. No splitting up either. Sounds like a plan, Skinner. You said no explosives. But how about Molotovs? You found Molotovs? Found some old gas cans and alcohol, probably brought by that Earl Williams fella. Wasn't too hard to throw something together. Don't think Wendigos like fire too much. Good thinking. Alright, we'll leave in 30. Any signs of movement? Nothing. Acoustics are weird down here. Don't see anything, but I swear we can hear movement further down. Don't know how far or where, but... I expect we'll find out as we go. Indeed we will. And Thomas, let's get our people home. Ain't we a pair, Skinner? And yeah, we ain't dying in this mine. Not today. Skinner slapped Thomas on the shoulder and smiled. He'd learned the hard lessons of leadership from Captain Thompson. The man gave his life to save them all, and Skinner would be damned if he did anything less, if it ever came to that. Preparing for their excursion, the teams checked their weapons, ate a bit of their rations, and took one last look at the large pile of rock blocking their original exit to the mine. 
No one had any illusions of their chances, but Skinner was right. If they didn't try, they'd be dead anyway. Thomas took the lead, taking Team Sigma ahead, shining their lights into every corner and crevice. The rest of Team Cryptid followed, keeping their eyes ahead as they moved further into Monogamai. Damn, how far down does this go? All the way to the bottom, Douglas. Ha ha, very funny, Emily. Quiet, you two. The group had gone several hundred feet down, moving slowly for safety, but so far they hadn't found any likely avenues of escape. They discovered a few side tunnels, but they had all collapsed years before, leaving their one and only tunnel heading down as the way they had to go. Skinner ran forward to find Thomas standing at a fork in the tunnel, with a smoking rifle in his hands. Damn thing jumped right out of the wall! Not two feet in front of the captain lay a dead wendigo, its claws still outstretched and its mouth twisted in a snarl, with glowing green blood leaking from multiple bullet wounds. You okay? Almost didn't see it. Blended right into the rock. Skinner looked down at the bottom again, then up to where the wendigo had been hiding. He raised his flashlight and stepped into the little rock alcove. There in the middle of the wall was a hole, not much bigger than his head. A stench of rotting flesh and garbage wafted out, burning Skinner's eyes, but he stepped forward and shined his flashlight into the crevice. Ah, it's a nest. Nest? The thing must have been living in there. Hell, it must not be much bigger than the creature is. Lots of bones. Don't see anything that looks like barns, though. Shit. Think there are more of them down here? We need to act as though there are, so don't let your guard down. Just about crapped my pants when it came at me. If I wasn't awake before, I sure as hell am now. Thomas slapped a fresh magazine into his rifle and wiped the sweat from his brow. The tunnel was getting warmer the lower they went, and everyone was now scanning each and every inch of the walls, looking for both a way out and other windigos. Did you feel that? I did. More settling? I don't know. I'm worried this whole mine is unstable. See those braces over there? Yeah, I do. The wood is rotted out, and the metal is almost completely rusted through. No wonder the tunnel collapsed above. This mine is a ticking time bomb. Well, aren't you full of good news? Just being honest. But I can't believe there isn't another way out of here. I just hope we find it before it's too late. Douglas turned a nervous eye to the roof over their heads, looking for any cracks or fissures that might signal an even greater danger. Great. And I thought I was paranoid before. Where's the silver shroud when you need him? Pipe down back there! Thomas found something! Thomas had signaled for everyone to stop and motioned for them to get down. Skinner crept up and looked over Thomas's shoulder, down a steep incline in the tunnel, ending at what appeared to be a large cavern. Looks promising. It's not another damn tunnel, but we'll have room to stretch at least. There's something moving down there? Let me take a look. Thomas got down on his belly and started slowly crawling down towards the lip of the tunnel. Looking down the sights of his rifle, he scanned the cabin in front of him. The space was far larger than he first thought. There was a trailer along one side with a platform full of workbenches on the other. He couldn't see anything in great detail, but then something flashed across his sight. What the hell was that? Whatever it was, was fast. He caught sight of another one, and now Thomas could hear the skittering of feet and clawed hands. 
Wendigos. Two of them this time. He watched as one of them settled on top of a mound of some kind, ripping into it with its sharp clawed hands. The sound of tearing flesh was enough to cause the bile to rise in the back of Thomas's throat. Mole miner. That's when Thomas noticed several of the mounds around the bottom of the cavern. Some of them were turned over, and Thomas's eyes adjusted to the semi-gloom. He could see that they were all mole miners, dead and in various states of disembowelment. That's when Thomas realized what they'd stumbled upon. This was some sort of larder, the Wendigo's feeding ground, and they'd have no choice but to go right through it. Skinner crawled up next to Thomas, and within a few moments, he saw it too. How many? Only C2. All right. I'll take the one on the right. You take the one on the left. Thomas just nodded as he sighted down at the cryptid munching on the mole miner entrails. Glancing over at Skinner, Thomas held up his fingers and counted down from three. All hell broke loose as both captains fired, hitting the Wendigos, but not killing them. Worse, several of the Wendigos dropped from hiding spots on the walls and ceiling, howling at the operatives. Thomas whistled as both he and Skinner emptied their magazines at the charging creatures. The other members of Thomas's team rushed up and quickly sighted the cryptids, adding their firepower to the mix. The sound of gunfire was deafening in the enclosed mine, intermixed with the screams of the Wendigos. The creatures could lose an arm or a leg, and they just kept coming, reaching up the incline where Team Cryptid was making their stand. Skinner was getting worried as he slapped a fresh magazine home and took down another one of the creatures, its body sliding down the dirt pile, only to be replaced with yet another one which leapt over the dead body into the air, heading directly for the captain. Seeing the creature in mid-leap, Thomas rolled over on his side and fired into the Wendigo, killing it, though the now dead body continued on its trajectory and slammed into Skinner, knocking him onto his back. Ugh, get this thing off me! While Thomas and his team killed the remaining Wendigos, Douglas ran up and helped pull the dead creature off the captain. Captain, are you okay? Ugh, those things are heavier than they look. I don't know how I'm gonna get this blood out of my under armor. That should be it. They aren't easy to kill, but at least they didn't have any place to hide. I'll take whatever advantage we can get. <laughs> Would you look at this thing? Skin and bones but more than capable of killing and eating for days. Douglas wiped his hands off on his armor, staining them too with the creature's glowing blood. He leaned down to get a better look at the thing. Immediately, he saw something different. Hey, take a look at this. What is it, Douglas? It's still got the remnants of clothes. At least, I think. Looks like the same worker outfits that the Foundation folks wear. Foundation? Wait, you don't think... We always figured Wendigos used to be humans, like ghouls. These may be Earl Williams' men. Poor souls. Wait a second. What's that? What its ear? Huh. It's a tag. Alright. Did not expect its whole ear to come off. <sighs> now I need to wash my hands. Again. What's the tag doing on a Wendigo? No idea, but I recognize this logo. It's Arctos Pharma. Arctos Pharma? The pre-war company? Exactly. This tag is new, or at least fairly new. And look at this number on the back. WF542B. Hold on. Check those other bodies. Team Cryptid spread out and examined all the dead Wendigos. Sure enough, each and every one of them had their own tag. To add even more mystery, at least five of the numbers were sequential. 
like they were part of a batch. What was that, Skinner? A batch. These are tracking tags. Back before the war, I used to work at the ranger station down by Watoga. For catch and release, we used tags almost exactly like these. What? Who would be tagging Wendigos? And why? That's a real good question. Arctos Pharma's long gone. But who the hell knows what happened to all those scientists after the bombs dropped? I got a weird feeling about this. Team, I want this cavern covered, top to bottom. Collect anything and everything that looks out of place, and see if there's a way out of here. Not sure why we don't just look for the exit. Because we're Team Cryptid, Douglas. Nothing about Monongah adds up. Not the town, not the mine, and not these Wendigos. We'll get out of here, but I have a feeling that we need to find out what happened here. Then I suggest we hurry. The structural integrity of this whole mine is suspect. Not a moment to lose, then. All right, people. Keep an eye out for any more Wendigos, but get to work. Team Cryptid moved with a purpose and fanned out into the large cavern. In the past, it must have served as some kind of staging area. As Skinner watched his team begin their investigation, he took in his surroundings. The single tunnel they come down was in behind them, while in front were the trailers, and of course, the bodies. As the team moved along, their flashlights illuminated at least two dozen dead mole miners. Despite the size of the space, Skinner felt the walls slowly closing in on them. Despite his outward display of optimism, he fully recognized the likelihood that none of them were going to escape. Giving his team something to do, in this case investigating the cavern, served two purposes. First, he was legitimately curious about the Wendigos, but second, it gave everyone something to concentrate on. Keeping them all busy, more than anything else, at least kept their minds off of their current situation. Skinner walked over to the pile of Wendigo bodies and knelt down beside them. He'd seen specimens up close in their lab, and unlike ghouls, Wendigos seemed to maintain at least some measure of their former human intelligence, though their actions were primarily driven by an insatiable hunger for flesh. Mostly skin and bones, their skeletal bodies still belied an incredible strength and dexterity, and Skinner was surprised the Colonel had been able to survive her own encounters with the creatures in the past. Of course. If anyone could take down a Wendigo by herself, it'd be the Colonel. And, well, Lilith. The Colonel bore her scars as well. Skinner remembered seeing her walk through the halls of the bunker a few weeks after the incident at the Atlas Observatory. The scars on her face had still been deep and angry red, only half hidden by the eye patch which covered the ruin of her right eye. It hadn't been pretty, but the Colonel hadn't let that stop her. It wasn't the claws or jagged teeth that bothered Skinner, but the clothes. Most Wendigos had long since lost whatever they had been wearing, but this one and a few of the others still had remnants of Foundation worker outfits, including torn shirts and pants. Earl and his crew hadn't left the mine. They had become part of it. Skinner picked through the bodies to see if he could find anything that might point to what had happened, but he came away empty-handed. He was deep in thought when Douglas came jogging up. Captain, Earl Williams was here. Figured as much. Any idea what happened? I found some notes he left in the trailer. The whole crew's getting ready to head down the main mine shaft. That's it? The last part of the note said they felt some crazy earthquake and thought the mine was going to collapse. Earl figured it was now or never. At least, that's what he wrote. They were heading to the main shaft. The last part of his message is to Maggie. His daughter at Foundation. Guess that means there's another way down. If it goes into the main area of the mine, 
That should connect to the other shafts and get us out of here. Better than nothing, I guess. Skinner left the Wendigo bodies and walked down to the center of the cavern. It wasn't long before the team reconvened in one of the old trailers. As the captain suspected, the only way out was the large shaft on the back wall. A previous cave-in had been cleared and frayed ropes were still tied to the debris, leading down into the darkness. Skinner leaned over the edge and shined his flashlight into the shaft. The beam barely illuminated the bottom nearly 40 feet below. That's the only way out of here, and I don't like it. Don't have to like it. We have to make it work. Well, I don't have anything else on my schedule today. I guess I'll check the ropes. My team will go first. You follow. Skinner nodded and went back to tell the team. No one was particularly happy about it, but what else could they do? Thomas and his team shimmied down the ropes until their boots hit the floor below. After Thomas unclipped the rope from his belt, he picked up his flashlight and pointed it into the darkness. Wherever they were, it was pitch black. His light didn't reveal much, only that they'd ended up in an even larger cavern. His team moved forward to leave room for the rest of Team Cryptid coming down the ropes, even as they tried to get their bearings. Beyond the cones of light, Thomas heard something, a skittering, like large rats running back and forth. Everybody can hear that, right? Thomas looked at his team, all of whom nodded nearly in unison. Somewhere in front of them, something was moving, a lot of somethings by the sound of it. Thomas was interrupted by the sounds of boots hitting dirt behind him. He turned and saw Skinner unclipping his own rope. Skinner, I don't think we're alone. What do you mean, not alone? They all took out their flashlights and pointed them into the darkness. The skittering sound got louder, and then they all heard something larger moving in the shadows. Out of the darkness, the yellow glow of eyes appeared. First one, then two, then more. Oh, bloody hell. Run! Run! For God's sakes, run, you fools! I'm Chris. And I'm not! We're not doing that routine right now. We're trying to do an advertisement. Oh, fine. I'm Sir Aloysius Pernicious, the better half of the team at One Wall Comedy. Okay, I wouldn't go that far. Anyway, come check us out on YouTube. We're your number one source for independent sketch comedy on the internet. Yeah, because that's such a big market. All right, come on. Let's get out of here. I'm getting paid for this, right? Don't push your luck. Oh, crap. Control, we have a proximity alarm at Site W. We're also showing heightened seismic activity in the area as well. Can you confirm that? It's not just another faulty sensor again? Relays and backups all confirm. All right, I've just notified Beta Lead. Expect to want to see for himself. Great. Shh. 
sir. It's good to see you. Cut the pleasantries. It's late. Are you sure Site W has been compromised? Sorry, sir. And yes, sir. The proximity alarms were tripped approximately 20 minutes ago. Heat sensors confirm at least a dozen human targets entered the incubator. Well, well, well. We've been looking for an opportunity to test Project Leviathan. It looks like we'll finally get to see what it can do. Sir, seismic activity around the site has been on the rise. We're detecting substantial instability. Damn, I told Blackburn to keep his Keystone transports away from our research sites. How bad is it? Multiple minor cave-ins, and the sublevel doesn't look good either. Losing Leviathan would be a major setback. Damn. Damn. Damn! Start prepping an extraction team. Once the creature deals with the trespassers, assuming we don't lose the entire site, it'll be necessary to transport everything over to the backup. Per the director, all available transport is still allocated the keystone, sir. Unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. I'll speak to her myself. Leviathan is far too important to be left to die on the vine. Have the team on standby. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Good. If anything changes, you must notify me immediately. The technician watched Beta Lead storm out of the operations center. Asshole. The man was almost universally despised by the staff. Arrogant, hot-tempered, and held anyone who wasn't part of the old Arctos staff in utter contempt... He constantly complained about the lack of resources given to his pet projects. Turning his eyes back to the terminal, the technician watched as the tiny group of red dots, humans by their body temperature readings, were swarmed by the denizens of Site W. Whistling to himself, he can only imagine the terror those interlopers must be feeling, especially when they got a load of Leviathan. On his second terminal, the seismic readings weren't looking good. The site wasn't incredibly stable to begin with, being honeycombed with various mine shafts dug deep into the earth, but the transports had upset the delicate balance and could cause a catastrophic failure. All he could do was watch and wait, and wonder just how quickly Leviathan would end things. As the sun rose over the ruins of old Morgantown, it illuminated the new settlement of Vault Town. What had started as a refuge for former residents of Vault 76 had become a major hub of trade, agriculture, and light manufacturing, helping to fulfill the original purpose of the vault, to help rebuild Appalachia after the war. Today, however, Vault Town had taken more to look like an armed camp, ringed with rebuilt barricades and armed guards, with military-grade bots patrolling the perimeter. Word had traveled fast, despite the radio blackout of the supermutant attacks up and down the Savage Divide. Refugees had streamed down out of the hills, carrying little more than the clothes on their back, bringing news of the hordes which killed anyone who stood in the path that they hadn't fled for their very lives. Mayor Edwards had acted swiftly and decisively, mustering the militia and setting the construction bots to build new walls around the expanded town. New Enclave Team Artemis, now cut off from communications from the bunker, had put themselves under the command of Sergeant Muller, who had pulled his T-51B power armor out of storage in defense of his new home and family. So far, Vault Town remained an oasis of stability in the midst of a chaotic Appalachia, 
the residents all wondered just how long it would stay that way. Muller walked down the main street, passing the stores and small machine shops. Though business was still brisk, he could see the unease under the surface as residents cast their eyes towards the hills to the east. Never one to sit back, Muller had put together a small team of experienced men and women to head north and check out Grafton Steel. The old factory complex had been home to a large group of super mutants. Unlike the others, these mutants had mostly stayed to themselves. They would defend if attacked, but rarely were they ever seen outside of the area. He wanted to keep tabs on them, but the news that came back just added to the mystery of what was happening. The sergeant opened the door to the refurbished airport terminal, turned town hall, and walked straight to Mayor Edwards' office. Janice and Harold just got back from Grafton Steel. Good to see you too, Muller. Sorry, Mr. Mayor, but this is important. Then cut the mayor bullshit and just give me the bad news. All right, Edwards. Careful. You're starting to sound like me. I can think of worse things. Seriously, what'd they find? Super mutants are all dead. Dead? That sounds like good news, not bad, right? That's what I thought. Until they told me how. The super mutants were killed by other super mutants. What? Didn't make any sense. Didn't believe it either, at first. Luckily, I sent him with a couple of those photo mode cameras. Just got the film developed. Take a look for yourself. Muller put down a stack of photos on the mayor's desk. Picking them up, Edward started leafing through them. The first set was of Grafton Steel itself. The factory sat on the edge of Grafton Lake. Where it had once been a tourist attraction, the lake was now just a toxic stew of chemicals and radioactive waste. Nothing looked too much out of the ordinary, though so far he couldn't see any signs of super mutants. The next set was taken from inside the complex itself, and that's when he saw the first of the mutant bodies. The rest are all like that. Found at least 40 bodies, along with numerous mutant hounds. A massacre? Based on the photos and the reports from our people, the super mutants were taken by surprise. Most of them barely had time to grab a weapon before being killed. The team found tracks, a lot of them, coming down from the direction of Mananga and then back out again. Super mutant tracks? Yes. They were organized, marching single file in an attempt to hide their numbers, I believe. But it's hard for those big green guys to stay in formation no matter how smart they might seem to be. Why on earth would the super mutants be killing each other? And why this group in particular? Maybe they were eliminating the competition or a territorial squabble. Maybe they just felt like it. It's a mystery to me. I don't like it. That makes two of us. We're already under the gun with all the civilians here, not to mention the influx of refugees. I sent a messenger down to Flatwoods. The new responders? I know Johns and I never saw eye to eye, but if we don't stick together, we'll all fall apart. They may be further away from the super mutants, but Johns doesn't have the firepower we do. I'd rather work something out, at least till we can get back in touch with the colonel. Did you speak to Jason about the communications problems? I did. He can't make heads or tails of it either. Nothing works over a, about a mile or so, up and down the entire spectrum. Jason doesn't think it's natural. Someone is jamming us. 
broad-spectrum radio jamming tech. I didn't think any of it would have survived the war, much less anybody having the power necessary. Figure it'd take a nuclear reactor to pump out that kind of juice. Nothing we can do about it right now, anyway. Speaking of the Colonel, where the hell's the White Spring in all this? Don't know. There was a rumor that the Colonel went into the Divide to do something about the Super Mutants, but that's it. Team Artemis was scheduled to be relieved four days ago, and so far, nothing. So, we're on our own. Knowing the Colonel, if there was anything she could do, she's off doing it. I hope so. How's Melissa holding up? Our daughter is a real handful. I doubt she's had time to be worried chasing that toddler around. And let's make sure we protect all of them. Unless the world is ending again, I said I didn't want to be disturbed. Sorry, Mr. Mayor, but there is someone at the front gate who said they have to see you. If it's more refugees, send them over to the aid station. Otherwise, I am busy. They definitely aren't refugees. And I think you're gonna want to talk to them. Alright, fine. But this better be good. And who is it exactly? Well, it's a delegation of raiders and super mutants. Wait, what did you just say? Raiders and super mutants. Together. And they want to talk to the person in charge. Edwards looked over at Muller, who had a seriously confused look on his face. Just when I thought things couldn't get any stranger. Well, are they armed? Did they say anything else? Armed to the teeth, but they were waving a white flag and kept their guns down, including those big green guys too. Well, let's not keep them waiting. Want me to bring my power armor, Edwards? Definitely not a bad idea, just in case. Muller and Edwards left the office, heading in two different directions. Edwards was walking towards the main gate, where he saw a small crowd gathered there. Corporal Jameson from Team Artemis was trying to maintain order. Hold on, folks. Just stay back. We have everything under control. Edwards frowned. Everyone was already on edge, and the last thing he needed was a full-fledged panic. Corporal, get this gate clear. Sorry, Mayor Edwards. We're doing our best. Here, let me help. Folks, I, I know you are concerned, but we have the situation under control. Please return to your homes. Edward's booming voice cut through the crowd. He waded into them, greeting them by name and slowly managing to get them to turn around and leave the gate area. He shook his head. News traveled way too fast, and he needed to see just what the hell had landed in his lap before a full-scale riot broke out. Now that's done. Just what is going on, Corporal? Well, we had just changed shifts and Donovan over there saw movement by the old train station. I was going to send someone to check it out when suddenly we saw this big white flag and super mutants. And the raiders? That's the real funny part. As if the super mutants weren't funny enough? Yeah, that too. But they were all walking together, kept their guns down, and said they just wanted to talk. Talk? Huh? Wanted to see the big boss or whoever was in charge. Said it was important. Mind you, the raider, well, she's got some kind of voice box or something. About that time, Muller came stomping over in his power armor and stood next to the two. Sounds like I need to speak to them. Okay, Muller, let's meet our mystery guests. Jameson, open the gate 
but keep a sharp eye on them. I don't think it's a trick, but better to be safe than sorry. Yes, Mr. Mayor. The corporal ran over and hit the big red button that fired up the generator. Over the sound of the engine, the gate slowly creaked open. Taking a deep breath, Edwards put on a smile and walked into the open. The first thing he noticed was a group of half-dozen super mutants. They were wearing a variety of different kinds of makeshift armor, and each one held a weapon. I pointed them towards the ground. Next to them were a dozen raiders, with a young woman in front. She had short brown hair and a blinking collar around her neck. Muller stayed three feet behind as he and Edwards walked up to the two groups. For a few moments, they eyed each other before the woman spoke. Kept us waiting long enough. You the one in charge around here. I'm Mayor Edwards. You all must be from Crater, right? Where else would we be from? I'm contractually obligated to call myself Weasel, and this here is Maul. The biggest of the super mutants stepped forward. If Edwards didn't know better, he could swear the mutant was wearing something akin to the Grognak costume from the Unstoppables. Me, Maul. Would rather be eating humans. But brothers are sick. They try to kill us. We heard something happened to Grafton Steel. Super mutants were attacking each other. We not attack. Brothers from West Tech said they want talk. They not want talk. They say we not right and try to kill. And then what happened? Coming down Old 61, we heard the fighting at the steel mill. Didn't realize until we got there that it was mutant on mutant. Thought we were up Shirt Forking Creek there for a minute, until Maul and his crew showed up from Grafton Dam. We tried to save brothers, but it was too late. Saw humans. Decided to help, not eat. Good thing they did. Those manufacturers, no, mother, forkers, were smart. Too smart. We barely made it across the dam and expected they'd be right on our ash, but they didn't follow. Why not? No idea. But we heard this big gumball. No. Humble. No. Loud forking noise behind the steel mill. Then all the other super mutants were gone. So that left us there with Mom. Me like we sell. She talk funny. You're one to talk. At least I got Fisher to swap the voice pack to female, though I'm not actually sure the mom from some old holotape show is better. Sends the wrong message. And still can't forking swear for shirt. Well, this might not be the craziest thing I've ever heard or seen. It's damn close. So just what the hell did you come all the way down here to talk about? Crater was hit by super mutants too. We put them down, but we lost some good people. Meg's not going to sit back and wait to get hit again. She's going to hit back. Hard. What does that have to do with us? The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Plus, Meg knows about some old raider weapon caches in Morgantown. Some pretty heavy firepower that David Thorpe stored away for a rainy day. Or the day that he was going to blow the responders away. Scorched got him first, though. What kind of weapons are you talking about? A couple of fat men and Marmadukes. No. Small atomic weapons to go with. David stole them from those tinhead benches over at Fort Defiance way back when. Only told a couple of people where he hit them, but Meg found out. Anyway, they are right on your doorstep, and Meg didn't want to be rude. Are you telling me we've built our town 
on top of a stockpile of tactical nuclear weapons? Maybe not right on top of, but close enough. Think of it as a Jasper. Seriously? You know Jasper and not Jasper? Forking Vox. Think of it as a... Weasel silently raised her middle finger towards the collar around her neck in lieu of attempting to gesture again. Of goodwill. I know you are not very fond of us, just like we are not fond of you. But unless we all want to end up as mutant chow, might be time to bury those forking hatchets in someone else's face. What about you, Maul? Me not hungry. I meant the working together part. Oh, me understand. Me not want to hurt brothers, but they sick. They want to kill all. Me no promise never eat humans ever, but will help now. All right. Give us a minute, okay? Don't take too long, Mr. Mayonnaise. Mayonnaise? You know what? I'm leaving that one. Edwards and Muller walked back towards the gate and spoke in hushed tones. So? What do you think? Any other day, I'd say it's a trick, but... I was thinking the same thing. Everything going on, can we really say no to an offer of help? You trust Meg? She's not your typical raider. I think it's a sincere offer. If they got attacked too, well, that's hell and gone from West Tech. And if they can hit that far north, we're facing the same threat. And the super mutants? That's where I might actually have gone crazy. You ever met one up close and didn't immediately try to kill you? <laughs> Can't say that I have. Me neither. Hell, we used to think ghouls were all going to kill us too, right? Now we got one on the town council. Good point. But the residents might not see it that way this time around. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Where's the live by in Appalachia right now? This isn't going to be easy. But let me handle the folks. And that's why you're the mayor. Okay, I'll back you on this. And keeping my fingers crossed we're making the right decision. Me too, Sergeant. Me too. Edwards took another deep breath and practiced his best smile before turning around and walking back to where Weasel and Maul were standing. He held out his hand to both of them. Welcome to Vault Town. Hi, I'm Fire Rider, and I'm the host of The Pixel People, a podcast dedicated to taking a close look at our favorite characters from our favorite video games. From major characters who define the course of a game's storyline, to smaller characters who you might have never noticed. Every week, we go beyond the quest line to examine a particular character's story arc and choices, and discover the real-world parallels and life lessons hidden just below the surface. I hope you'll join us. You can find the Pixel People on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Shit, Cyrus. Can we get out of the damn rain now? Why don't you just shut your mouth, Violet? We'll stop when I say we stop. Fuck you. We've been non-stop for days. Me and the boys ain't bots. 
at least bots wouldn't complain so damn much. We're getting paid a fortune for this job, and if you don't want to be mutant chow, I suggest you stick to the program. Got it? Whatever you say, boss. Whatever you say. Cyrus swore under his breath and pulled his old field jacket tighter against the rain and wind. Violet wasn't wrong. They'd been going hard ever since they left Big Ben Tunnel. Despite Vinny's assurances, Cyrus wasn't going to take any chances with the supermutants and wanted to get as far north as he possibly could. But so far, the trails laid out on the map allowed them to get around the mutants with no problem. Right before they left, Vinny passed along a final bit of information. He said a little birdie gave him a place to start, one of the cult compounds up north. Cyrus wasn't a fan of dealing with the cult. He'd seen what they did to trespassers, and he wasn't about to end up as the next sacrifice on their altar. However, he didn't need to get too close to pick up the pheromone trail. Just close enough. When the rain finally stopped, the crew found themselves just east of Sugar Grove. They heard some mutant hounds in the distance, but didn't see any evidence of other super mutant activity. It was beginning to get dark, so they went looking for a safe place to camp for the night. Cyrus found a spot overlooking the old government facility, hidden amongst the rocks along the cliff face. As the gang settled down for the night, Cyrus reached into his pack and pulled out the folder that Vinny had given him. Still not convinced you're real antlers, but if you are, I'm going to find you. The writer boss flipped through the grainy pictures. Most of them showed more than smudges against the background, but one in particular must have caught her in profile. The silhouette was pretty clear, if not very detailed. It showed the rough outline of a woman with light-colored hair and antlers. Not entirely convincing, but then again he'd seen more than his fair share of strange things in the wasteland. The scant information in the folder just said she was fast, strong, and agile, also warning that she could smell things from long distances, which meant they would have to keep her upwind for when they approached her. The write-up suggested that she didn't like guns and might even be unarmed. Again, not a lot to go on, but it was enough. Cyrus had already begun to form a plan in his head on how to track her, and another plan to catch her. As he returned the folder to his pack, Cyrus sat back with his crew and grabbed a bottle of bourbon. Once they reached the general location of their quarry, it was going to be all business, so he was going to boost it up while he could. Their little party lasted well into the night before the crew finally fell back into their bedrolls in a drunken stupor. They'd go hard again tomorrow, but for now, silence returned to their little slice of the Savage Divide. <clears throat> Sir, is man going to be okay? Dr. Harefield said she'll be fine. Might be a few weeks before she can get back in the ring with you, but, uh, <laughs> I can guarantee that she's proud of you. I didn't mean to hurt her so badly. I didn't think I could. Val, you did what you had to do. Don't ever apologize for that. It could just have easily been you in the medical bay, not your mother. I know, sir, but I still feel bad. Ah, you'll get over it, Val. Out there in Appalachia, you're not going to have the luxury of pity or remorse. When you make the hard decisions, people are going to get hurt and people will probably die. Did I ever tell you about my last mission in Montreal? You haven't, sir. We were running a counterinsurgency operation against a group calling themselves the Red Storm. They had been attacking lumber shipments and military supply convoys. Needed to stop them. 
Sir, what happened? They were good, real good. The more we chased them, the harder they were to find. We tried arresting the families of suspected members, even uh, executing a few of them when they resisted. But it still didn't flush them out of hiding. Command expected results, so I had to take drastic action. What did you do, sir? I set a trap. I sent one of our platoons out as part of a supply convo, loaded with arms and ammunition that I suspected the Red Storm would find too tempting not to attack. And I was right. They hit the convoy right on schedule. I knew the Red Storm would fade back into the hills if they even smelled a trap. So I made sure to block all communications from our men. No one was coming to save them. Instead, I had a squadron of Hellion fighter bombers standing by. I won't lie, Val. Part of me regretted what I had to do, but you had to see the big picture. The squadron came in low, out of the west. They dropped napalm across the entire valley, killing everyone. All of our men died as heroes, Val, even if they didn't know it. It was one of the hardest decisions I ever had to make. But I'd do it again in a heartbeat. The ends always justify the means, Val. And I would do whatever it took to protect our country. I think I understand, sir. Good. You're a smart young woman. And I know you'll do the right thing. Now, let's go see your mother. Valeria felt herself rising out of a deep, dark pool towards a bright, shining light. Indistinct sounds slowly resolved themselves into whispered voices and the beep of hospital equipment. As she opened her eyes, her body felt heavy and sluggish. Where... where am I? As her eyes adjusted to the light, Valeria found herself in a sterile room populated by a bed, a small bureau, and a single chair, wearing a hospital gown and her arms held down by straps. The hushed voices she heard were coming from an open door, but she couldn't see anyone on the other side. Before she could say anything, a young woman wearing a lab coat with glasses, carrying a clipboard, walked into the room. Ah, I see you're finally awake. I must apologize for your surroundings. I had hoped we could have met under different circumstances. This is merely a precaution. The amount of sedative used was... substantial. And we didn't want to risk your well-being. Just, who are you? And what am I doing here? Colonel Valeria, I am Director Evelyn Hornwright, Head of Research and Development. Welcome to the Pact. We would like to discuss your future. Thank you again, members, for joining us here on The Modus Files. If you've enjoyed this content, please subscribe, and better yet, please leave a review to help others find our little enclave. You can also follow us on our various social media accounts, including Twitter, Instagram, and Blue Sky, at Modus Files, or at Modus Files Podcast, for more information about our story, Fallout 76 content, and random musings on the enclave. I'd also like to thank our cast, Pandora Beatrix as Colonel Valeria Faustina, Young Valeria and Weasel, Chrissy Williams as Researcher Emily and the Vault Town Secretary, Maria Cheshire as Lieutenant Cindy, Chris Smith from One Wall Comedy as Knight Shin, Graham, Sergeant Blaine, Gray 20, and Maul. Austin Rogers as Lieutenant Jones, Jessica Starr as Beta Control, Winnie Novosensky as the Overseer, Ryan Negrin as Day, 
Rob Cunningham as Private Lawson, Myrmiger and the Mole Miners, DJ Reed as Captain Thomas and the Technician, Josh Smith as Captain Skinner and Gray Nine, Eric Gold as Private Douglas and Gray Commander, Tim Young as Sullivan, Kirsty Harrison as Paladin Romani and Director Evelyn Hornwright, Dr. Mark Harsworth as Bitter and Albert Faustina, Cashel in a Corset as Jen and Corporal Samantha, Phobos as Beta Lead, Malcolm Reynolds as Gray 25, Ray O'Hare as Gray 26, Aaron Atherton as Corporal Jamison, Steve Lundberg as Raider Boss Cyrus, Amanda Lee as Raider Violet, and Brad Williams as Mayor Edwards, Sergeant Muller, and the voice of Modus. As our third season continues, we'd like to give a huge shout out to our fellow creators, the Chad Podcast, Tapes from the Waste, Once Upon a Wasteland, and the hosts of artists who continue to provide us with the wonderful artwork you can find on our website. And a very special thank you to Nobody, our very first commissioned artist who is working on updated portraits of our main cast. Stay tuned for our next episode, The Pact. Lastly, thank you to all of our subscribers and supporters. God bless the Enclave, and God bless America. Members, we look forward to your next visit to our little Enclave.